We're working through our outlines we picked up last time around the whole concept of mediation, which we used the Timothy text to start that contemplation. And I might take you there again to First uh, Timothy chapter two, verse five, and remind us that mediation, as we have been looking at it, is the fundamental work of the second person uh, in bringing to us a knowledge of God through his offices. What we've said before is that the gospel, which is the euangelion, the good news, is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can, you can create that as an equation. What is the gospel? The gospel equals the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That simple construct is easy to remember and it will keep you on track as well because whenever you are contemplating biblical truth in its expository form or of its exegetical form or commentary form or just in the uh, daily discourse between men and women and, and folks we know, we always want to know whether or not we are in the sphere of the gospel. We're in the core of the gospel as the framework for our conversation. The, the reason why we want to be able to know that is to be able to determine how easy it is or not for us to drift into peripheral ideas that really may or may not correspond with that central theme called the gospel. There's a lot of things we could be talking about. There are a lot of things that are going on and there are a lot of things that are often discussed within the rubric of scripture. But that a thing is talked about in the rubric of scripture does not mean that it's being talked about in the framework of the gospel. To say uh, I'm being scriptural is not the same as saying I am being faithful to the gospel. So that, that needs to be known. Now, so I'm taking you through some fundamentals. By the way, our, our new year is going to be really, once again, drilling down into fundamentals. The title of our new year series is going to be The Pilgrim's Progress Through the Book of Romans. So that will be the, um, the theme for this year, The Pilgrim's Progress Through the Book of Romans. I'm going to use that as a foundation to build a reminder to us of what the gospel is through that great anthology of 16 chapters of biblical exposition by Paul. We've done it about three times over the history of our, um, our work at Grace. And there is a lot more that I think that that book will be teaching us as we address probably uh, in the beginning of the new year, uh, what I would consider the most controversial chapter in all the Bible. That's Romans chapter one. It is the, the most controversial chapter in all the Bible. And by the time we get to Romans nine, we will be dealing with the most offensive chapter in all the Bible. Romans 9. But the totality of the book of Romans is the gospel proper, the gospel proper. This is why Paul laid it out in chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And a lot of people are, and there are lots of reasons for which people are. But the apostle Paul was determined to preach the gospel, and he fully preached it to the church at Rome. So what we're going to get is a, is a real uh, steady diet of uh, uh, developmental theology through the book of Romans, once again, anchoring down into where our world is today and why the world needs the grace of God as it is in Christ. Uh, every doctrinal truth that is essential to the Christian faith is in the book of Romans. So we'll, we'll get a chance to work through what we call systematic theology as well uh, for the 52 weeks. And you know they're gonna go by quick because they do. 52 weeks blew by in our Arise, Move, and Go series. And, uh, and I was intentionally in the Old Testament uh, to give people familiarity with the Old Testament. And you were blessed by that because we were able to expound the gospel through the Old Testament, which is a fallacy of, um, of what we would call application of the word of God in many of our churches today. They do not know how to preach the gospel in the Old Testament. So a lot of churches are intentionally avoiding of the Old Testament with the exception of lifting up a text here or there for moral application or some kind of other uh, therapeutic uh, uh, purpose. 
but to do exegetical, expository, God-exalting, Christ-centered teaching out of the Old Testament means you have to have enough confidence as to what the gospel is to be able to do that. So that's what we did for 52 weeks. Now we're going to be in the New Testament for 52 weeks. We're going to be definitely in the New Testament. This will be intentional. I'll be working you across all the books of the New Testament for 52 weeks. And of course, if you guys understand... Uh, the, the concept of biblical hermeneutics, interpretation of scripture, there's no such thing as uh, the New Testament being isolated from the Old Testament or the Old Testament being isolated from the New. They're not a clean cut set of propositions where one does not relate to the other. They both interface almost equally across every text that is stated in scripture, meaning almost every New Testament utterance is grounded in an Old Testament principle. So you're constantly doing this with the text. You read Matthew chapter one, verse one, uh, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is how his birth was done. You're gonna have four or five Old Testament verses that establishes that principle. And that's true. So it's not like we won't be going to the Old Testament, but our anchoring will be in the new. So you get a chance now to really get familiar with the richness of the New Testament. That means you're going to kind of be coming up out of deep water because you already know some fundamentals about, about the Word of God, but I'm hoping over these 52 weeks several things will occur for you. You will be more clear on the gospel and therefore more clear on what is not the gospel because of the battles that are going on in our world right now. It's important for you to be really clear on the gospel. Hence, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, these words, for there is one God. Do you guys see that? Immediately we are back in Torah, are we not? Immediately we are in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Immediately. So you, there's no way for us to know Naomi without knowing Ruth and no way to know Ruth without knowing Naomi. Did that make some sense? Because these two sisters are uh, the calls of Boaz, our great Lord Jesus Christ, coming into the center of their life, bridging the old and the new, right? So, so here he is again, the spirit of Christ, establishing the monotheistic principle. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And what I want to remind you as we go to point number three in our outline, mediation, mediation is for men, Mediation is God's disposition towards men. Like men don't mediate for God. God mediates for men. It's important for you to know that, that the, pre the, pre the, the preference of mediation is that God mediates in our behalf because our fundamental situation is that we're separated from him. So the Lord Jesus becomes this multifaceted, multi officed, multi-qualified person with, uh, with, with, with the application of mediation in the lives of human beings, and we'll, we'll talk that through more. So in your mind, what you want to be thinking around mediation is the many, many ways in which Jesus mediates between God and us. The many, many ways in which he does that. So here's the proposition. This is called a pronouncement. This is not uh, this is not an explanation. When the text says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, can we have that text, please? When the text says in 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, that is a pronouncement and declaration. It still needs to be developed. There's no clarity. Like when we're talking about uh, preaching the gospel, to pronounce the gospel or to utter the gospel, like in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 2 and 3, where in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul speaks, can you pull that up for me? He actually says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, these words, I want to walk through and kind of elucidate that. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the what? The gospel, which I preached unto you in that verb form, that means I've already preached it unto you, which you have already received. So three things have occurred. He says, I am now declaring unto you the gospel, which I've already preached unto you, which you have already received. So there's been a significant engagement around the gospel that he is once again about to declare. 
Y'all got that? So these are people who have already received it, who have already heard it before and are about to hear it again. Right. That is a blessed community, a community who has already heard it, who has already received it. Paralangbano means to fully welcome it in as the grounds of your hope. You heard that good news, that good news rescued you. You received it and embraced it. And now you're about to hear it again. Well, why would you be hearing it again? You would be hearing it again because the gospel opens up another office of Christ's mediatorial work for your soul. So if we ask the question, what is the gospel? I already told you how to state it, right? How do we state it? The gospel is what? The person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you state. And then you go, now what does that mean? That means that the Lord Jesus is the mediator between God and man across every need that we have in the matters of salvation, redemption, eternal life, etc. That means we want to know Jesus in the many offices that he occupies for the needs of our salvation. Somebody was asking me the question the other day about the names of God. We were making some comments about uh, the names of God. And what we affirmed in our comment around that is that God has many names. You do know that, right? He has many names. Now, what that means is not that God just is kind of enamored by what we would call um, nomenclatures or nominatives. That's grammar for a name. Like I have a name and you have a name. My name is Jesse. That's my name proper, right? But my name is simply a tag for who I am. Right. If I tell you my name is Jesse, I'm not really telling you much about myself. I'm giving you a, a moniker. But until you get to know me, just to know my name is Jesse does not mean anything. So until a person really gets to know you, get behind the nomenclature, the phrasing and gets to know you personally, gets to know your character, gets to know your temperament, gets to know your skill sets, get to know your background, your history, your origin, gets to know the scope of your impact in life, gets to know your reputation, because name also means reputation. That's what that means. So if you have a name, you may also have a reputation. Oh, I know that brother. He does this. I know that sister. She does that. So we're talking about not having this kind of mono conceptual idea of just a name. So when the Bible says there is no other name given among men from heaven, but the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, what that means is that that title, that nominative is a door into everything that God is in Christ for us. Now we got to get to what? Know him. And this is why we, in our opening study a couple of weeks ago, I gave you the book of Job, maybe chapter 22, 21, where it says, acquaint yourself with God and be at peace. Do you guys remember that? Acquaint yourself with God and be at peace. Well, the more we study the word of God and the more we come to understand the broad scope of the gospel and its application, the more we're acquainting ourselves with God. And the more peace is the foundation of, of that acquaintance. So when Paul says here, um, the gospel which you receive, wherein you also what? Stand. The gospel is our standing. It's the grounds upon we have, which we have hope. Now watch what he does in the next verse, in verse 2. By which also you are saved. Right? The gospel is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believes. The gospel saved us, didn't it? It saved us. It saved us in multiple ways if we contemplate it. It saved us in terms of us being in Christ before the world began and God decreeing to redeem us from all iniquity. The gospel saved us when it was good news between the father and the son before the world was made. Did y'all get that? Right. Because God determined to save you. If you were his sheep, he's going to hunt you down. So when the father said to the son, that's my sheep, go get him. And the son said, yes, father, I will. That was good news. The heavens knew that. And so when we talk about the gospel saving us, it's saving us positionally. Then it's saving us uh, redemptively because Christ had to come and die on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he said, it is what? 
to tell us that finished. The work of redemption was finished, meaning our salvation was secure in terms of the covenant demands that God required to make a sinner right with him. So the whole of the heavens rejoiced 2,000 years ago in AD 33 when Christ said it was finished. You and I didn't have a being except in the mind of God. Our salvation was secure in Christ saying it in, in heaven before the world began. It was secure when Christ died on the cross and said it is finished. And then the security of that finished work came to you and me in time when we were walking in darkness and somebody preached the gospel to you. That mediatorial work of somebody hunting you down told you, hey, 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 God has paid for your sins. It's time to go, right? That is mediation. That's mediation. That's the end game for which Christ came, right? Um, as he, he said it, you know, in, in the Gospel of John, all that the Father gives me shall come unto me. And, and this is what he's saying in the idea of mediation. Now, notice what he says, by which also you're saved, if you keep in memory what I preached unto you. You guys see that? That's what is called a conditional clause. And fundamentally what it is, is a warning not to take the Gospel in vain. Notice the last one, unless you have believed in what? Right. And, and, and what that indicates is that there are some people who pretend to believe the gospel and there will be things in this life that will become more important to them than the gospel. Y'all see that will be more important to them than the gospel. Well, that's what we call apostasy. Like people get excited about the gospel when they need rescuing. Right? Then the gospel is the ark that covers us from the wrath of God. But as soon as it stops raining, we try to dig a hole in the ark so we can get out and go back to hell. Right? And, and then we discover that the gospel is not the most important thing to us. That's a mystery too. But listen to what he says in verse three, because this is where I wanted to go. First Corinthians 15, three, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. Now watch this, how that Christ, that's the person, Died for our sins. That's the work. According to the what? That's the testimony. How that Christ, that's the person. He's Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's the Christo. That's what we're studying, right? Died for our sins. That's the work. Died for our sins. According to the scripture. That is the testimony. That is the trifecta. He says, you guys have received that. That is, that's the that is what we call the moniker of the gospel. But to unpack that is to unpack what it means to be Messiah. To unpack that is to unpack why did he have to die for sins? To unpack that is to ask what did his death on the cross affect when it came to our sins? To unpack that is to say how broadly do the scriptures speak in terms of this matter of redemption for our sins. And we already know how broadly it speaks. Psalm 40 verse 7 says in the totality of the book. How broadly does the gospel speak about your redemption and mine in the person of Christ from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22 and 21. That's how broad it is. So we have a whole lifetime to learn the gospel across all of these characteristics, do we not? And so that's the point of that that we're making. So let's look at some really what I'm going to call big blocks. Not going to be long, some big blocks. We've already understood that a fundamental characteristic of Christ's coming in terms of his mediatorial role is uh, is was given uh, last week around the idea of the seed. Remember that the seed S E E D. Never forget that concept because that's what the book of Genesis is all about, the seed. The book of Genesis lays out humanity's beginning, then it lays out the fall of man, and then it lays out the promise. That's what Genesis 3.15 was all about. We call that the proto-what? Evangel. Proto-evangel, the proto-euangelion. What that means is God is the first person preaching the gospel. Adam didn't preach the gospel, God did. That's what I meant. Christ was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. We had a savior before we sinned. So when we sin, God comes with the good news saying to the devil that her seed is going to crush your head. God's making war against the enemy for us. And that is the nature of the gospel. The nature of the gospel is not what you and I do, but what he did for us. Like that's really important to know. 
This is we're talking to somebody here recently about young men getting into the ministry. If they if they don't understand the difference between God centered theology and man centered theology, they're not going to make it in this world. Because man centered theology is so absolutely overwhelmingly pervasive today. And men are easily drawn into the narcissism of God being a servant to us. Right. And it's easy. And by the way, it's just easy for us to talk to snakes because that was about man-centered theology. That was about man-centered theology. That's what I'm saying. If the first parents who were sinless, not impeccable, they were not perfect. They were not, they were not impeccable. They were mutable. They could change. So they were vulnerable to the temptation. But they weren't operating with the level of absolute sinfulness that you and I are. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's an amazing thing that you and I can hear the gospel and be happy about it. You better thank God that he gave you a heart to love the gospel because by nature we're selfish creatures. And the gospel doesn't matter, you know. Here we are moving up on the day uh, of, of celebrating our Lord's entering into the world. Very few people are celebrating that right now. Look at our study. Very few people are taking these matters seriously, but, but, but God has some people all over the world who do, right? We love hearing the good news of the gospel. It does something for us, right? Yeah, sing them over to me again, right? Be wonderful words of life, beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. So Jesus lays out, it's all in the book, all in the book. And so uh, the seed in Genesis becomes something that's extremely important. We talked about under point number three, the angel of the Lord, right? The angel of the Lord. And then we talked about Melchizedek and we looked at Genesis 14, 18 in the book of uh, Genesis around Melchizedek. But let me take you to Psalm 110 verse four to anchor that down. And I just want to talk briefly about why a high priest, why a high priest. Psalm 110 verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of who? Right. Now, why a high priest? Because the high priest is the ultimate mediator between God and his people. The high priest is the ultimate mediator. And here are the correlating factors. Here are the correlating factors. The correlating factors is that the seed is really speaking to a son, is it not? Like the son is given. So when we're talking about seed, we're talking about children, aren't we? We're talking about children in the womb. So that's what that's what God meant when he told the serpent. Her seed will crush your head and your seed will bruise his heel. This is talking about humanity rejecting Christ and putting him on a cross because they are inspired and controlled by the devil. You got that right. That's that's the cross word. But seeds are really referring to human beings. When a woman conceives in her womb, that seed is a human being. And then that seed comes into the world, male or female, and that seed grows up. Do they not? And so Jesus came into the world. That's what we will be celebrating, the birth of the, the God man. And he became a young man. And we saw that in the scripture. And then he became an adult, didn't he? He was the carpenter's son and he was a carpenter himself. And then he went into ministry, didn't he? And in his ministry, he was a prophet. OK, he exercised qualities of priesthood. Sure. But the Bible is clear that Christ's ascension to the right hand of God makes him the high priest and mediator of his people presently. He is our Melchizedek. What that means is he ever lives to make intercession for us. Does that make some sense? So when you think about the high priest, you're thinking about someone who has in his bosom all of God's people because the father only looks at us through him. Like, like if you think about God thinking about you and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, God thinks about you through Christ, not apart from Christ. You're done deal if the father thought about you outside of Christ. But it's not possible if you're a child of God for him to think about you outside of Christ. It's important for you to know that. This is why we always say, and you really want to learn these things, everything that he is, I am in him. And, and like that is a radical, comprehensive, propositional reality with God about me. Did that come home? Right. Because, again, I've, I've talked to you about this before. Like when we're conceptualizing who we are in our own life, 
and we're thinking about our own personal struggles. And I know this is where I'm supposed to go because I, I know this needs to be understood. To the degree that you get separated in your mind from who you are in Christ, to that degree, you lose your peace. To that degree, you lose your joy. To that degree, you lose your confidence. And here's the reason why. Your conscience cannot overcome the vulnerabilities of your own personal weaknesses as you view yourself outside of Christ. Did that make some sense? Right. So when we are when we are viewing ourselves outside of Christ or we are functioning on another level, I would say uh, uh, we would be functioning unwittingly, not aware of our security in Christ. Then we're setting ourselves up for failure as well, because in terms of spiritual battles, we can win none of them on our own. We can't even win the spiritual battle in our own mind. Let alone, don't even call the devil in yet. Yeah, we love to call the devil in. Don't even call him in yet. Because you don't even need him in when you're dealing with the weaknesses and foibles and realities of your own fickleness. How am I going to overcome my own fickleness and my own weakness and my own struggles unless I remember who I am in Christ? Does that make sense? Right. So now what we're doing when we remember who we are in Christ is we are benefiting from our high priest in heaven ever living to make intercession for us. What that means is from heaven, the Lord Jesus is petitioning God on your behalf to preserve you. This is called the doctrine of preservation. What does that mean? You and I will struggle. We will fumble. We will fall, but we will never fall off the ship. Does that make some sense? And that's because God is is holding us in right and so the perseverance and preservation of the saints is the consequence of a mediator keeping you from walking away from him you must know that right god is able to keep that which we have committed to him against that day right and this is why we are thankful to the only wise god right do we give glory and honor and dominion and power for having kept us from falling away so that idea of of the high priest is extremely important even though you don't see him this is what you must know about your Melchizedek is that your Melchizedek exists to make sure you make it to glory does that follow also in, in terms of the, his Melchizedekian role uh, you and I know this is critical to where we are today you must know that a Melchizedekian high priest is delivering us from a works religion of Old Testament mandates under that old covenant system because a Melchizedekian priesthood is not the priesthood of the old covenant. So you and I must know that you and I are not being dealt with by God on the grounds of the old covenant. We're being dealt with by God on the grounds of a new covenant, a new and living way which Jesus himself made for us by his death on the cross as the Lamb of God. That's another office, is it not? So as the Lamb of God, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. He's also the son of God, but he's also the high priest. So our Lord is operating in all of these positions. The one who is offering up the sacrifice is himself also the sacrifice, right? And this is what we mean by the offices. And so you and I want to always be open to the offices of Christ. And there are many. I'm just giving you a handful of the macro offices of Jesus. But there are many. To whatever degree you can, uh, remember the names of the Lord. They are concretized in the works of Christ. El Elyon. El Shaddai. Right? Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Sikinyu. Okay? Jehovah Rapha. Hundreds of names corresponds to hundreds of offices that apply to Jesus, who is our mediator, to meet us in specific areas of our need. Does that make some sense? Right. And it becomes beautiful because that is what is meant by him being able to make all grace abound so that you and I ultimately make it to glory. That's under point number three, sub point B, Melchizedek, the great high priest, king of Salem. Now under sub point C, you see the term, the temple of the Lord. You guys see that? Is that in your outline? The temple of the Lord? All right. So I want to touch on that a bit. You guys already know it. But this brings us into another kind of mediatorial work which has to do with the communion of the saints. 
So like for a minute, what I just talked to you about was a mono, a mono kind of one-to-one -one ratio relationship between who Jesus is for you and who you are to him. And that's extremely important. It's important for you to know that you individually have a high priest. That, okay, so look, look, it's important for you to know. That's what John meant when he said in 1 John chapter 9, and we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ, the righteous, right? And he is the one that is a propitiator for our sins. That's a personal relationship which obligates you in the time of your trouble to go to your personal advocate and say, help me, I'm in trouble. Does that make some sense? All right, all right, so that really is a call to a certain kind of practice. And, and this, this was extrapolated from the externalizing of the mediatorial role of the high priest in the Catholic Church. When the role of the high priest was externalized and commodified across the ministry. I, wa I want you to understand it, though. I want you to understand it for what this means. Because let's say, for instance, you're a Christian, but you really do not um, employ the relationship that you have with God at the level of him being your high priest on a daily basis. So you are neglecting the benefits of a priesthood in your life on a personal level. Does that make some sense? So and, and one could easily look at the calamity that would come for you not spending time with your high priest. And especially when you ain't got to go nowhere, like you don't have to drive to a cathedral and climb into an old wooden box and let somebody pull a shutter open and say, yes, my child, why, why are you here? Right. And, you know, that dude don't know you from the man on the moon. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. Like right where you are, you begin to talk to God, knowing that Jesus is your mediator and you begin to reckon with him in terms of your insecurities or in terms of your questions, or in terms of your intuition, or in terms of your, um, your, your sensibilities that, um, that, that you, need, you need guidance, or purely just saying, Lord, you know I'm a mess, forgive me. Right, I mean, you can, you can, you can, you can do pro bono forgiveness work. God will take that. He, you, you know, you're getting ready to mess up. You're getting ready to lean into it. Lord, have mercy on me. I'm getting ready to mess up. Help me. Right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You can, you know, because what David taught us in Psalm 40, verse six was sacrifices and offerings you do not desire, but a broken and a contrite heart you will never despise. Right. So the relationship between you and your high priest is a relationship of the heart and it's in the privacy of the sanctum of the relationship between you and him. Does that make sense? Now, what 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 that particular component is a part of is a bigger communal system called the temple of the Lord. For us to be dealing with Jesus's office as our high priest is for us to be actually simply employing one narrow personal mono mono face to face component of the larger temple proper society. It's a communal event now. And so now we're dealing with what it means to be part of the temple of the living God. You guys do understand that, right? So I'm going to give you an Old Testament text and we're going to give a, a New Testament text because when you and I are saved, you and I are brought out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are brought into a situation where we become the peculiar people, a holy priesthood, right? A special nation unto God. That's biblical language, First Peter chapter 2. So now as a peculiar people, you and I are automatically in the sphere of the temple. So you and I can actually visualize all of us as temple ministers. You can. Can you do that? Visualize yourself as temple ministers. I'll use this for a few more minutes before we shut it down. I talked about this um, three weeks ago as we were going through the book of Joshua in Joshua 24, where Joshua um, said to the children of Israel, all right, you guys choose today which one of these pagan gods you're going to serve, because I can, I can tell you guys love pagan gods. Choose which one you're going to serve. And then he says, as far as me and my house, we're serving Jehovah. 
And then they said, we're going to serve Jehovah also. You guys remember that. And what Joshua said was, you can't. You can't. It's not possible for you to serve Jehovah also. You can serve, you can serve Jehovah only, but you can't serve Jehovah also. Didn't I teach you that? Because everybody wants to serve Jesus plus. And what God, what Joshua told the people was, you cannot serve Jehovah also along with serving all these other pagan gods. Right. Because God, one, is a jealous God. Right. He ain't making room for for other for other husbands. It's just not happening. When he built the home, he didn't build a home so he could be kicked out and some other some other dude can come in, metaphorically speaking, because we're the bride of Christ. Right. So the idea is that when they said we will serve Jehovah, they were saying we would be his slave. And on three levels, we talk about slavery. I'm going to talk about that this this Sunday, because Jesus, assuming a human nature, whether you know it or not, he committed to be a slave for all eternity. That's what you have to know. Think about it. I mean, he's eternal God. The infinitude of his being is limitless. And the qualities of his nature are also limitless. But the moment that he assumes his human nature, he takes on permanent, limited status. And once he puts on permanent, limited status, he is occupying the position of a slave. Did that make some sense to you? That's what Paul teaches us. He's a slave. In fact, in the Greek grammar, and I love this, in Greek grammar, the New Testament, pideon and pidos are two Greek terms. One side means to be a child. The other side means to be a slave. Okay? And this makes sense to us psychologically because when you are a child, you are no different than a slave, even though you're heir of everything. Isn't that what your Bible says? This is Galatians chapter 4. You should know your Bible. So when an heir is a young boy or a young girl, they don't know nothing. They can't run nothing. Until they grow up, they're just like a slave. In fact, adult slaves in the royal family have more authority than the child who is actually the heir of the family. Am I making some sense to you? So when we look at the Lord Jesus assuming a human nature, you're looking at him taking on the position of a slave. Which is what you and I are called to be. Didn't I tell you about my hoodie t-shirt, right? Christo Dulos. Right. Slave of Christ. Well, every one of us are do losses. Do you agree with that? Every one of us are do losses. And, and, and I can easily now actually take a moment to enjoy the, the gender distinction on this, because in our present culture, we don't recognize do losses much in the masculine gender. But we do recognize the do la do la. OK, do la is the feminine gender word in correspondence to that female servant who helps the women bring forth children. That's what my daughters are. Do losses. They're, they're also, you know, uh, PAs and soon to be doctors. But what they took on was the office of a do loss because they love their sisters and they want their sisters to have all the care that's needed to bring forth the children. Does that make some sense? Did that make some sense? All right. So then that is what we are called to be spiritually as well. You do agree with that. Right. You and I are called to help bring forth the people of God into the reality of who they are in Christ and to help nurture them up into mature status. There's a, there's a profoundly important, intimate, deep and I think critically redemptive component to that idea when you learn how to minister to your brothers and your sisters, because in this context, we are all operating out of the feminine gender of being the bride of Christ. And to whatever degree we can help our brothers and sisters bear fruit unto the glory of God, then we're operating out of that doula status. You remember the midwives in the days of uh, King Pharaoh when he wanted to destroy the, the men children in Exodus chapter one. By the way, Genesis is the seed and Exodus is the birth. It's the womb opening and allowing the child to come forth. The whole book of Exodus is about the deliverance of the man child. Did that make sense? Right. That's why it opens up. Exodus opens up with the protection of Moses. And then the children of Israel being told that they are his firstborn. It's the idea that the seed comes to maturity 
And now it is brought out of the womb of Egypt and given to God for God to take that child and grow him up in the wilderness. You and I watched that child grow up for the whole last year as we walked through the wilderness, didn't we? So Exodus out to make your way out. Ex out. Hadas way. Did that make some sense? Like over our doors, you'll look at it back there. What does it say? Exit. Exodus means to walk out of. Now, children don't walk out of the womb. If they do, we've got some problems. They've been in there for a long time. But the whole point is that we help men and women to bring forth fruit unto God. That follows. You're a slave. The other area in which you're a slave is as a soldier. And the Bible tells us we're soldiers of Christ, are we not? Right? As a good soldier, fight the good fight of faith and lay hold of eternal life. I got one more metaphor around the slave that I want you to get. So we're slaves in that we are doulas and doulases to help the people of God bring forth the fruits of righteousness, which are by Christ. We are slaves um, in the sense in which um, we fight the good fight of faith and we war a good warfare. The Bible tells us you do not fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So visualize yourself as being part of God's army because it's true. And, and if you fail to do that, when you get hit upside the head by arrow, then you can know you in God's army and somebody's just hitting you with darts. It's true, right? And, oh, I'm in a warfare. And what do I do in a warfare? I wage a good war. Now I need to know how to navigate a world that's constantly trying to take me out. And what does uh, God's servant tell you and I to do? Put on the whole armor of God that we might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, right? You, you and I don't get to just go outside into the world completely without the armor on because you're going to suffer for that if you do, right? Also, as a soldier, if you're wearing your armor, you're now fit to be able to help another soldier in the event that they are out of kilter with their God, off the path, off the territory, having stumbled, having fall, or maybe having been wounded. Am I making sense? You see the soldier metaphor. The other part of that soldier metaphor I want you to get, just like with the doula, um, is that the doula or the slave is visibly known to be the slave of the master. This is not a hidden thing. When you are a servant of Christ, people should know it because of your priorities. And it's the same thing, like a doula. I mean, I, you know, I was jazzed when two of my daughters said they wanted to be doctors, and that's, that's what they're doing now. But they've helped deliver babies. Both of them did EMT. You know what EMT is? That's that crazy work of running around in them big old square box cars, you know, when, when things happen, and they have to jump out and save people's lives, right? And, and they, they had some harrowing stories, they told me. But when you're called to that... That's something you love to do. I was just talking with my daughter about that. Both of my daughters, Trent and Gloria, about this the other day. You know, they said we, we knew we were called because most people run away from danger. People that are called run to danger. People that are willing to save lives run to it. They run to it. And, and they know that there's a calling on their life. This is an amazing thing. They say, Dad, I know it's a calling, right? And, and then they tell you to tell me the stories, and I'm going, yeah, that's your calling. That ain't my calling. Okay, mine to preach the gospel. It ain't running up in there. You know, and so you have to know that calling when you're called to it. Um, and, and when you are executing that office for God's glory, then people know you are a servant of the living God. Does that make sense? Like a lot of things that we do for God makes no sense to people who don't understand what it means to serve God. I'm making sense. I'm making sense. A lot of things we do for God makes no sense to people who does not know what it means to be a servant, a servant of God. OK, and we can be servants in many different ways. I'm just sharing with you, too. And then and then, um, you know, finally, this this third category that we're dealing with in the temple, servants in the temple is designed for us to facilitate the offering of sacrifices and praise and thanksgiving to God. So a lot of the temple work that we do as servants in the temple, doulases, is when we gather together in formation to engage in the spiritual sacrifice of the proclamation and exposition of the teaching of the gospel. Like right now, we are engaging in temple service. Would you agree with that? Can you comprehend that? 
Right now we're engaging in temple service. I love the way the Hebrew writer puts it. I'm going to just uh, quote Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. You can pull that up. Um, I, I really could go back to an earlier portion of scripture, but I'll start at Hebrews 13 and just listen to the metaphor and, and let the idea of what we're doing right now, which is happening all over the world somewhere, some kind of way. Um, let what we're talking about frame this idea. And this can happen with just two people. This can happen with a mother and her daughter. This can happen with a father and his son. This can happen with a brother or his sister. This can happen with a husband and a wife. In other words, a temple ministry event can take place between two people who are called to engage in spiritual sacrifices before the Lord, and it is temple work. Did that come home? It's important to capture that because here's what Christians often fail to do. You ready? Christians fail to overcome the secularization of their thinking when they are actually called to function out of a sacred mindset when they're engaged in a task. I'm going to say it again, just in case, you know, you're from the hood and you had never heard the word secularize. To secularize something is to make a distinction between things holy and things unholy, things common and things uncommon. So, and, and God means for you and I to be able to do that. It's discerning how we frame our thoughts around an assignment or an event, right? So when God says, be ye holy for what? I am holy. There you go. The union between us and God is the grounds upon which our behavior is driven, right? It's not talking about being some kind of um, arrogant, self-righteous, pompous, religious, you know, bigot. But it is talking about thinking in a way that constitutes an understanding that you are operating as a child of God in a priestly function. And in that priestly function, there are many things that need to be done. Prayer needs to be done. Exhortation needs to be done. Counsel needs to be done. Guidance needs to be done. Sacrifices need to be offered up. Candles need to be lit. The labor needs to be filled with fresh water. The bread needs to be set on the table. Our garbs need to be washed. Sometimes they need to be put on. Sometimes they need to be taken off. The uh, chauffeur horns need to be cleaned up. We need to be praying. We need to be praising. We need to be singing. All that goes on in the temple. Did that make some sense? Right. And, and, and any of that can be an overlap if you want to. So like right now, I'm functioning as a teaching priest. That is the book of Malachi. And you are all priests in the temple, once again, re being reminded of your orders as I am functioning as a temple priest. Does that make sense? But at any time we wanted to, because of the presence of the Spirit of God, we can go from a teaching priesthood to a worship priesthood immediately and begin to sing praises unto our God in crescendo of his goodness in our life and his presence among us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to the most high God. Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lord God almighty. And to him be all praise and dominion forever and ever and ever. Amen. See, and we could easily go into that because we're called to do that. Now, people might think you crazy. But that's because they haven't been initiated into the temple. And on the outside of the temple, that's what they should hear. They should smell sacrifices offered up to God. They should uh, grasp the incense burning. They should, they should sense the sacrifices being offered and the labor being filled. They should smell the showbread, which is supposed to be cooked every morning and eaten every evening. Right. And they should watch the menorah as it's being lit. The glories of the person of Christ set forth in the preaching of the gospel, because in the temple, the light has to stay on because it represents the Shekinah, the presence of God among us. So whenever people come into our community, they should be coming into a transcendent experience of the true and the living God, whether they like it or not. Because this is what constitutes the difference between sacred and secular. Have you ever been in a secular meeting, a secular environment where they're doing secular work, talking about secular issues? Say yes, because you have. I know you're tired, but you have. You've been in secular environments where they've talked about mundane things, 
worldly things, you know, material things, you know, and those are all legitimate things to talk about and deal with. They are essentially qualitatively different than when you are talking sacred things, when you are talking transcendent things. When you and I are dealing with Coram Deo, the presence of God, when the heavens are open and the spirit of God has come down and lifted us up out of the lethargy. Like some of you have been lifted up out of the lethargy, have you not? Some of you right now are at a level of thanksgiving because you're better off now than you were 30 minutes ago or an hour ago, right? And that's what the spirit of God will always do for us when we come into his presence in a sense of sacred order. Right. This is the beauty of it. The be worship the Lord and the beauty of holiness. Right. And that's the whole concept. Very important. Very important to know. And that's what it means to be a priest. And it should be natural and organic to us because of the proxies. We practice this two or three times a week, don't we? Should be natural to you. Should be natural to you. It should be natural to you then when you're out there in the secular context that a moment arises that turns sacred. Did I come home? Did anybody get what I just stated? It should be natural to you that when you're out there in the secular world, a moment emerges where it turns sacred, where now you are the object of the mediatorial work of God in Christ as one of his priests dealing with a sinner in need of God's mercy. And now you are either a teaching priest or priestess or you are a ministering priest or priestess or you are a worshiping priest or priestess, right? You are intervening some kind of way on the behalf of the Lord Jesus. Does that make sense? You know what that means? You and I are mobile tabernacles. We are the mobile temple of the living God. We're summing this all up in the person of Jesus. He said he was the temple and we are the temple in him. You and I are the temple of the Lord, right? Our bodies are the temple of the living God. So wherever we go, we can pitch our tent and begin the illuminating work of the Shekinah in the context of the apparatus that's in the temple that people need. So just for your reminder, so we can shut it down. When you are the temple, you have a door of access for sinners to come to God. That is the gospel. The sinners on the outside of the tabernacle are the temple. I'll give you the vision if you don't already know it. You should know it by heart. The tabernacle or the temple only has one way in. They're not a bunch of doors. There's only one way in. And the same way you go in is the same way you come out. Right. So as the tabernacle, you access God by the one way, which is for us, the one person who is for us, the way, the truth and the life. Does that make some sense? So you and I are accessing a two leaved door a two-leaf door that opens up and allows the sinner into the tabernacle of the Most High God. In that tabernacle, you get to guide the sinner to the first artifact, the first object in the temple, and that's the burnt offering. The altar of the burnt offering is the first thing you see when you come into the temple. It's to the left-hand side. Y'all keeping up with me? So as soon as the sinner comes into the preaching, and teaching or exhortation, the first thing they see is a burnt, uh, a golden altar that is a burnt offering altar. Now they are reminded that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Immediately they are conscious that God is viewing you and me as sinners. And the thing that mitigates our sin is the shed blood of the Lamb of God. This is why Christ must be preached and exalted. Does that make some sense? The second thing the sinner does comes coming in is he sees a laver, which is nothing but a big old baptismal pool. I love that because as, as you and I preach the gospel to people, and we're going to be doing women's baptisms in January because it's time, because uh, we did our men's a few months ago, as you know. Baptism is the labor for washing. The priest washed in the labor before they did their work. So you have the altar first and then you have the labor. Does that make some sense? So you hear the gospel, you believe it, and then you enter into the waters of what? Baptism. That's all priestly work. Did that make some sense? That's all priestly work. 
When the sinner hears the gospel and they recognize the one sacrifice for sin once for all and the person and work of Christ, they are compelled to wash because now they're ready to serve the Lord. That makes sense. And then from that altar, from that labor, that big molten labor, now we move to the altar of incense. So now what are we doing? We are learning how to call upon God in prayer. Supplication and prayer, intercession, supplication, doxology, praise, imprecatory prayers. You didn't do that before you came to Christ. But once you come to Christ, once you are sanctified by the blood and washed in the water, you are now moving to the altar of incense where you are calling upon God and God hears you for Christ's sake. Am I making some sense? And you're learning how to pray because a lot of times Christians don't know how to pray. That makes sense. We don't know the categories of prayer. We don't know the practical function of prayer. But as a priest, wouldn't you think a priest knows how to pray? Wouldn't you think, would you, wouldn't you think Brother Mac, a priest knows how to pray? And, and a priestess. Y'all should know how to pray. You should know how to pray to God for men. You, know how to, you should know how to pray to God for yourselves. You should know how to pray to God for the body of Christ. You and I should pray in the behalf of God in relationship to other people so that they are audibly hearing you communicate with the true and the living God as Jesus did. Visualize Jesus. Didn't he do that throughout his ministry? Everywhere he went, he set up tabernacle and he functioned as the high priest of his people. as you and me too. And see, you, you can do this anywhere. I think I needed to drill down into this concept, didn't I? The idea of the person and work of Christ. Lo, I come in the volume of the book is written of me. Now, if Christ tells you and I to go into all the world and preach the gospel, is he not calling us to this kind of work? It is extremely practical. It is not hard. It is not difficult. It's not difficult to be in a secular context and say, Lord, use me. It is not that difficult. All you got to do is just be inclined and remind yourself that you are always on sign on assignment for the king. Lord, anytime you want to use me, Lord, turn this secular situation into a sacred moment. Am I making some sense? Right. And then the Lord Jesus says he actually comes to the sinner through you by that mechanism. Now, you and I know that's the case. That's the reason why he sends us. So now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. All of that is temple language, isn't it? All that is centered on Jesus, right? None of that is talking about you and me. That's talking about the apparatus and the environment and the covenant blessings that come from our great shepherd laying down his life for our sins and our peace is a consequence of his blood. Do y'all see that? Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. This is called the new covenant. This is the New Testament in my blood, which was shed for you. Do you see it? One more verse. Look at the next verse. We're done. Here it is. Verse 21. <clears throat> he does what? Make you what? All right. Make you perfect. Now, remember, I told you, watch out for the trap. That word perfect is not impeccable. That's an organic term, and it means grow you up into maturity. Did y'all get that? It's an organic term that means grow you up into maturity. Look at that text. This is where we're shutting it down. So the God of peace, and we need peace. The God of peace that brought again from the dead our great shepherd of the sheep, that Lord Jesus Christ, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. He is the one that matures you. Isn't that what the text is saying? You don't mature yourself. See, God is committed to you more than you're committed to him. You do believe that, don't you? Notice what he says. Make you perfect in a few things. What did it say? I know it's warm in here. Make you mature in every good work. Is that possible? Right. To mature you so that, as we were stating just a moment ago, a sacred moment can turn into a, a, a secular moment, can turn into a sec sacred moment easily. Where God gives you the comprehension and the confidence to be a mediator on his behalf in any, any given situation. Like, you can do this. You can say, Lord, mature me 
in this moment so I can give you honor. Does that make some sense? Like you, you may not be mature in a thing, but God can mature you in that moment. Do you believe that? Can he, can he just immediately apprehend you, help you watch your mouth, your crazy brain? You know, some of us is crazy. Lord, get my mind, slow me down, watch my tongue, help me to hear more than speak. Help me to open my mouth in this situation at the right time so what comes out of my mouth will glorify you. You know what you're doing right there? You're praying while you're engaging in ministry that God would keep you so that he can use you. And why wouldn't God answer that prayer? He would. He would. Make you perfect in every good work to do his what? Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. And who is he doing it through? Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.